0: Car Sales acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples.
1: It's the showroom, everything happening in the automotive marketplace, something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. Well, not really, (laughs) but that is a nice segue as we say a huge congratulations to editor-in-chief at Car Sales Mike Sinclair and his lovely partner Sonny who tied the knot recently. Now, The upside of all that is we have stolen the keys to this pod, so Road Test Editor Scott Newman, a.k.a. Addicted to Sliding on Socials, is back in the hot seat with me. You probably should be driving this one, mate. Hello. G'day, Rusty. Pleasure to be with you, as always. Now, did I spot... I think you reviewed uh, the Porsche Cayman GT4 RS recently. People can go looking for that story on the car sales website. Give us a little insight here. What do you think?
2: As you can imagine, Rusty, a... 500-horsepower mid-engine Porsche sports car sitting at the top of its Cayman tree is actually a pretty good thing. They don't tend to make too many duds, Porsche, and I was lucky enough to head off to Phillip Island and drive the RS in its natural habitat, and it certainly didn't disappoint.
1: Speaking of natural habitat, I'm off actually to the Toyota Gazoo Racing Festival in New Zealand, and it looks like I'll get to drive a few cool things in the GR stable there. Did I spot you (laughs) smiling widely, sliding widely in a GR... 86 not that long ago too?
2: Yes, absolutely. Our video review is now live on the Car Sales YouTube, Car Sales site, so go and check that out. But, yeah, a lot of fun. You'll have a lot of fun any day when there's a, an 86 at a racetrack involved tends to be a recipe for smiles. But as you'll see in the review, there is a but. Ooh. So, but you go and check that out if you want to find out all
1: the details. Okay. Little snapshot of the video I saw. There was lots of drifting. Coming up in this edition, some research around the daytime use of headlights. Is it a good thing? After you hear that chat, we'd love your thoughts. Podcast at carsales.com.au. The academic who conducted this research is going to join us in studio. Now, we're releasing this around the time the Australian Grand Prix shifts into gear at Albert Park. So our classifieds item is actually a rare Brabham. And fittingly, Sam Brabham, David's son, grandson of Sir Jack, is going to join us to talk about that very rare car. Plus, we're all gassed up for the unpopular opinions segment, one in there on parking tickets for ICE vehicles using EV spots. Won't spoil that one for you, but the battle lines are clearly drawn. Um, A reminder too, lots of great awards happen during the year um, that that car sales um, do with lots of in-depth research. They're very special for the manufacturers that win them. One of the many gongs, Scott, uh, during the year is Best Family SUV Awards, a very popular market segment. That is one that people don't want to miss.
2: No, definitely not. I'm currently neck deep in that. Research and testing for best family SUV. And if you're a parent who needs to carry two, three, four kids, we're testing the most
1: popular and finding the best seven-seater family SUV. Couple of parents in the driver's seat on this edition of the showroom, so very (laughs) appropriate. Um, If you missed last month's episode, don't worry; it's in the listener library or wherever you get your pods, for that matter. Just search the showroom; you'll find uh, all of them parked on the car sales website too. And there's lots of chat in that last episode, uh, including a review of the GR Corolla, which is broken cover in this part of the world, Um, plus an interview with the outgoing uh, OzGP CEO Andrew Westercott, who's done a ripper job. alluded to it a moment ago, but this year's event um, really looks like being the biggest and best ever. So check that out when we're all done with this edition of The Showroom. This month's major launch is the Cherry Emota 5, the latest addition to the really popular small SUV segment. Now, this has created a lot of discussion, not all of it good, I should point out too. Joining both Scott and I to unpack all of this is our car sales colleague, Ali Lawrence. Hello, Ali.
3: Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me.
1: Hey, great that you're back on the pod with us. Scott, just quickly, cherry are back. I mean, let's open the batting here with a bit about when they were last in Australia and kind of why they left.
2: You know, the, the Motor 5s cherries re-entry into the Australian market. So they were here about a decade ago. They sold the J1 small car and a ute as well. Again, very attractive pricing, but they didn't really make many waves, whereas now they're back and they've got some pretty lofty sales ambitions, Ali.
3: Yeah, they do. So not a lot of people will know the Cherry brand, um, but that's something that they're keen to change. So Cherry wants to sell 75,000 cars every year by 2027. So oh. <laughs> they've got a bit of work to do, uh, I think, to steer Aussies away from the big name brands, but they're going to do that with a pretty good seven-year warranty, um, which will be up there with Kia, and lots of standard equipment for a $30,000 small SUV. So There are two trim grades, starting with the Emota 5BX, which you get 18 inch alloy wheels, LED headlights, LED taillights, you get wireless phone charging, all the good stuff. And then you move up to the top spec EX, which is $33,000 and you get a sunroof, electric tailgate, 360 degree camera, heated steering wheel, and front seats, um, and a lot of red trim bits. So you get red calipers and and all these little red highlights around the, the outside of the car, which makes it pretty eye catching.
1: So, uh, based on what you just said, there re- very reasonably priced, and judging by some of the pictures, um, it looks good too. What is kind of you're a balanced operator? What's causing some of the negativity around Cherry and motor?
3: We got word that some of the press cars were cancelled. The press bookings were cancelled um, because they had to Cherry had to take these cars back to check over their driver assistance aids and do some recalibrations. Um, was what we're told, and we're not surprised because. Yeah, when I drove this car, it was binging, and so many warnings were going off. It was it was actually a bit disconcerting. The lane assist wasn't great. There's this little camera that sits above the steering wheel, and it's like a driver monitoring camera. I think as soon as your eyes, it must sort of track your eyes, and as soon as you like look, say you look ahead out the window to see if there's a car coming like through a roundabout, for example, like you're checking obviously because you're driving, and it goes. You have been distracted. <laughs>
2: mm. Yeah, exactly. I've had this with a, uh, a different car recently and it had the very similar system in it. And yeah, look down to the radio, look to the side, like Ellie says, to look at oncoming traffic, and it will actually bring up an audible and visual warning, distracting you further. So I think it's a really important point, though, especially with these cars. It was in the Cherry's got a five star safety rating and that's very admirable. They only want to sell five star rated cars in Australia. Fantastic. But. With all these active safety aids, the calibration of them is so important because, A, if they're distracting you, that's no good, but, B, if they're so distracting that they're turned off, then there's no point having them to begin with. So, you know, I suppose kudos to Cherry for recognizing the problem and attempting to rectify it. But hopefully, yeah, hopefully on Ali's findings, they do actually improve things and make it an aid rather than a distraction.
3: Yeah, if I had to sum it up, I would say the car as a whole was frustrating. Okay. Um, that not only was it, yeah, having that warning, it would pop up with, um, you are no longer in driving condition, which to me means I'm driving on a dirt road or something, but I'm just on a regular 50k road. I, I just couldn't understand it. There was just so many warnings popping up. But yeah, like overall, like the engine's good. I think 108 kilowatts turbo, petrol four-cylinder engine which isn't too bad the suspension's super floaty it didn't feel super tied down um, which was a little bit disappointing the steering is super light but it's artificially light so you just get no feedback another big thing I noticed especially on the freeway was a lot of wind noise from the sunroof so it's just like it's it, it almost sounded like the sunroof was open I checked and it wasn't so yeah <laughs>
1: Okay.
3: yeah it's not a brilliant first attempt but it's it's admirable
1: Okay, so some things to be mindful of there in your potential purchase decision. This is their first toe in the water again, as Ali rightly points out. Who are they going after here in terms of that market share you detailed at the top of the uh, of the interview? Who's kind of the main competitors?
3: The cheapest um, option in that in that segment is the MG ZS from about twenty four thousand dollars thereabouts. So that's a fair bit cheaper, um, but. If you go for like a Hyundai Kona, that's in the same segment, Kia Seltos, um, Toyota CHR, the base grades of those cars are around the same price, um, if not a little bit cheaper. So, so those are some other options. But again, you get a lot more equipment in this car. It's just not necessarily better than those vehicles.
1: Open question to both of you before we let Ali go. Realistically, I mean, what are. Their chances of getting a pretty solid share of what is already a very busy Aussie market?
2: I think their chances are pretty good. Whether they'll reach 75,000, I don't know. That's a very, very ambitious target. But we've seen with the success of MG and GWM Haval um, with their offerings that, you know, respectfully maybe aren't segment leaders, let's put it like that. But People are buying them in massive numbers, especially MG. They're now, I think, uh, fourth on the sales charts or something like that because they've got long warranties, they've got plenty of equipment, they look pretty good, and people are prepared to overlook some maybe driving foibles. But I think from what Ali's saying, the Cherry might need a further few tweaks before it can match even uh, the likes of the MG ZS and et cetera. So I'd be interested to hear her thoughts on this.
3: I can see why Aussies will be drawn to it for yes the equipment and the price point um, but I reckon I'd go a ZS over this car if it were my money. If they're only going to do short trips they're not going to drive a lot they're maybe just going to drive around the city it's not going to be that bad but if you're going to go for longer drives um, highway stints and you're going to do a lot of kilometres in the Cherry you might not love it.
1: Now what is coming up for you in terms of cars that you're going to sample things that people can keep an eye out for on the website what are you up to?
3: Um, at the moment, I'm in a Lexus LC 500 convertible, which is super luxurious.
1: Very you. Um,
3: yeah, I just got out of just got out of a Jeep Wrangler, which had, very you. Yeah, had had this amazing electric roof that just opened the whole thing up, and I was just like, ah, oh, I love it. So, I've had uh, two convertibles, if you can call it a convertible.
1: Listeners can find Ali's review of the Emoda and the different variants there on the Car Sales website. Just go to carsales.com.au, click on news and reviews. Lovely to chat with you again. Thank you for jumping on this edition of the showroom.
3: Thanks, guys. See ya.
1: Unpopular Opinions time. This little segment is about stuff that winds us up on the roads with rules from designs to fines, stupid decisions and dumb bits of driving. Now, you mightn't always agree with those. That's okay. Tell us so. Or better yet, share your unpopular view. Podcast at carsales.com.au. Righto, Scott. Your unpopular opinion this month is... find for
2: ice vehicles using EV charging spots are 100% warranted.
1: Oh right, I can sense lots of people, traditional uh, owners firing up about this one.
2: It hit the news recently that there are now new parking fines for ICE vehicles, so that's internal combustion engine vehicles using EV parking spots, so EV charge spots. So if you've got a regular combustion engine vehicle and you go and park in an EV charge spot, you can be hit with a fine of up to $3,200. So we've got $3,200 in ACT, $2,200 in New South Wales, (sighs) basically three grand in Queensland, but only, only, he says, $369 in Vic. And my unpopular opinion is this is a great idea. Probably won't be too popular with people who get the fine, but if we want to encourage EV uptake and encourage EV adoption, then you can't have regular cars parking in the EV charge spots, especially when it's so hard to come by EV charge spots. like They're getting more and more commonplace, but still, if you need to charge your EV, you need to charge it. You can't just go and then go to the next petrol station like uh, regular cars at the moment. So I think anything we can do to discourage people just sort of you know arrogantly and blindly choosing that car
1: spot, I think is a good thing why aren't Victoria ramping up their fine for it? It seems so logical to me.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing that comes out of this is that Victoria needs to take maybe this a bit more seriously because compared to other states, we're certainly lagging behind. And, yeah, I mean, I've actually had this happen to me while testing an EV. I've gone to, you know, looked it up on the app, gone to charge it, and there's been a car in the charging spot. So there's nothing more frustrating as an EV owner, as you know, an EV driver, needing that juice and not being able to get it. As someone said, I think, on the comments, imagine, you know, rocking up to the petrol station at the diesel pump or something and finding someone parked in the middle of it. You'd go wild.
1: That's a great analogy or a great comparison, but I can, I can hear traditionalists, if you like, all going, well, how come they get the pole position parking spots at the shopping centre <laughs> and, and favouritism and so on?
2: Well, I mean, you know, you get disabled car spots, you get family car spots, you're going you're gonna to rail at the people getting their children out of the cars as well. So that's just the way things roll, I think. Now, I certainly feel better having gotten that off my chest, Rusty. What about you? <laughs> Time for you to vent.
1: My unpopular opinion this month is you can be a purist and still own an electric car. Now, here's where I'm going with this. My old boss in, uh, in television loves cars, has done for ages. Now, I haven't spoken to him about this, but my, my buddies tell me that he's fundamentally done a bit of a, a clear-out. He's had, um, you know, HSVs, Mercs, Porsches and so on, and I think he's still kept uh, one that's close to his heart, so still something he can enjoy um, with a nice drive somewhere or maybe even a track day and so on. But his daily is now an electric car. Why do we need to be one side of the battle line firing at the other? Why can't we just share the love, people, the love of driving, the love of cars, something cool to experience, try something new? Just put down the swords. It's okay to drive an electric car if you've come from that purist background. I am probably what you'd
2: call a purist. Like I love driving. I love driving sports cars, supercars, motorsport, all that sort of stuff. But- just for your driving every day, I would have a Tesla or a Kia EV6 or a Porsche Taycan or whatever, whatever, you know, your budget allows because they make perfect sense in daily driving. A, that's where they're most efficient compared to an internal, internal combustion car. They're quiet. You've got that instant torque delivery. You don't tend to drive that far day to day, so the rain thing isn't a problem. You're not trying to drive to Brisbane for Melbourne, for instance. So I'm on board, mate. You know, it's all about having the right vehicle For the right application. You know, you probably wouldn't take the uh, EV on a racetrack necessarily, but equally, for day-to-day use, why do you need an internal combustion engine?
1: There you go. And if you like electric cars, don't forget our special EV podcast in the car sales pod range too, along with the showroom and lots of others that are parked in there. It's called What's Under the Bonnet. Every month, Nadine Armstrong and I look at different topics around this rapidly emerging segment of the automotive marketplace, the new models to ordinary everyday EVs and how they've dealt with the change and much more. Check it out after we wrap up this edition of The Showroom. We launch into hot topic now for this episode. Maybe that should be plural topics. Uh, one of the hottest and most controversial, Scott, surrounds um, new releases of the Ferrari. Now, I got I reckon I pronounced this wrong in the last episode. So we're talking about the SUV Ferrari that they said they'd never build. How do you say it? What, what's the correct pronunciation? It's the
2: pure Sangue.
1: Apologies to Ferrari Australia. We got it right. Tell us more about it. Well,
2: this is a really interesting car on a lot of levels, Rusty. So Ferrari said it would never build an SUV. And if you ask them, they probably still haven't built an SUV technically, although the Pura Sangue is, for all intents and purposes, an SUV. Mm. It's their Ferrari family car. It's Ferrari's first proper four-door car. And it's really, really, really good. I personally haven't driven it yet, but uh, our colleague Gotham ode went to the international launch, 88 out of 100. We don't give scores out like that wow. willy-nilly. So what's really interesting about this is two things. Ferrari's approach to SUVs and the market response to it. So at the moment, every luxury maker pretty much has an SUV. Mm. Bentley, Rolls-Royce, Lamborghini, and they all do it to make as much volume as possible. Ferrari went the other way. They said, we're going to make this car, but we're never going to make more than 20% of our sales the pure sangue. So they're not after volume. And consequently, you've got a car that's quite limited and customers are falling over themselves. They've already had to close the order books because the wait list is out past two years, even though this thing is basically a million bucks by the time it parks in your driveway. And it's got a six and a half litre V12 with well over 700 horsepower. So just goes to show, if you build it, they will come and they'll come in droves if it's got a prancing horse badge on it.
1: Amazing. Any other little specs that you want to sprinkle in there? Because, um I mean, lots of interest in this, be it uh, people looking it up online. And clearly, I mean, cr- that's crazy, mate. What did you say? More than a two-year wait. Yep, absolutely. So, the big thing is the price, you know, it's
2: 728000 before options and options on Ferraris get out of hand pretty quickly. Zero to 100Ks now in 3.3 seconds. How do you reckon that'll go on the school run? Yeah. Good. <laughs> it's also all-wheel drive, so it's got a really clever all-wheel drive system that we won't go into here, but check out uh, Gotham's review if you want to know more. But perhaps the most surprising thing is that I love it. I want one. I really want to drive it. I really want to have one. I think it looks fantastic. Uh, it'll sound insane with that uh, naturally aspirated V12 in it. And just goes to show that, yeah, we're going towards an, uh, an electric future perhaps, but, yeah, there are plenty of people out there, especially at the higher end, that want a really exciting, visceral internal
1: combustion car. Head to the website. Check out that review. We'd love your thoughts on it too. Send us uh, a little bit of feedback. Give us some initial impressions. Carsales.com.au is the website, of course, where you can find it in, in the news and reviews section. And our email for the podcast Very simple. Podcast at carsales.com.au. News time on this edition of the showroom. Now, Scott, we mentioned this briefly at the very top of the show today. You've got the Best Family SUV Awards coming up, and you've been working pretty hard on this, haven't you? Yep, absolutely, Rusty. That's dominating
2: my time at the moment. I'm researching and testing all the large family SUVs. So not the occasional seven-seaters like the Outlander and X-Trail, but We've got Palisade, we've got uh, Sorrento, we've got uh, the new Pathfinder. So all the cars that realistically you'd think about if you're regularly carrying. Three rows of passengers.
1: Well done. We'll keep an eye out for uh, that. Now, GM want to use a bit of AI tech, if you like, in their cars. The app in question, our producer Tom Thexton's actually been using. Tom, Tom, come in here and dive into the conversation and (laughs) and tell us a bit more about it. Come on.
4: I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with ChatGPT, but it is an insanely powerful piece of tech that sort of took the world by storm, a few months ago, I suppose it really came onto the onto the scene. Essentially, it's it's AI technology, intelligence, which I mean for me still doesn't mean a hell of a lot. It's sort of AI has been thrown around in every circle and industry, but this particular piece of tech is really good at um, sort of raking the internet for information. And you can ask it to write stories, you can ask it to write songs, you can ask it to write podcast descriptions, which we definitely don't do here at Listener. (laughs) And so yeah, GM is exploring how they might integrate this into their cars. And a few examples of how this might work could be, of course, there's voice commands, right? That's going to be the sort of top line basic use of this technology. But you could say to the car, hey, chat GPT or hey, GM or MG or Hyundai, whatever car you've got. Uh, how do I change the oil? How do I check the oil in my car? And suddenly the car's going to rake the internet or it's going to you know, default to some information that it has and it's going to read out instructions to you on how to change the oil or right. check the oil in your car. So I've got a question to both of you. How do you feel about this, Tom and Rusty? How do you feel about having this
1: artificial intelligence overlord in your vehicle? First of all, I think call Skynet. I'm nervous. Get Arnie Schwarzenegger (laughs) here. Um, But can I just say to you, um, Tom, this is perfectly timed, this conversation, because some cameramen I was working with at the weekend were using this and they showed me lots of examples of things um, that they did with it. It's incredibly fast at scouring the internet to grab all kinds of information and compile it very quickly And I I saw uh, (laughs) examples um, where they created something, uh, for example, like an FM news radio story, Mm. uh, created a voice to read it and uh, wrote a news story within seconds basically and the listeners could not tell that it was not a real human being. So it can do some amazingly good things so long as it's safe and effective in an automotive sense. I'm not afraid of it. I'm not, not fearful of it.
4: Yeah, and, that, and that's the thing. There's a lot of uh, concerns at the moment, especially in creative industries with this technology because it can emulate humans so, so well. But in terms of how it's going to be used in in this setting, I think in a car it's going to be a lot more practical. So, you know, really, really high-quality voice recognition, uh, which means you can your voice commands become really effective. But then there's also that next level of saying, you know, chat, GPT, um, you know, I want to go to dinner tonight or I want to cook something for dinner. What do you think I should cook? You're on the way to the supermarket and it reads you out a recipe that it thinks you should, you know, you should cook and you can just go back to it and say, I don't have salt chat GPT. You know, can you substitute the salt for something else? It'll come back and say, absolutely. Here you go. And that's the power of this. It's like Alexa on steroids Mm. in your car at your fingertips, essentially.
1: There you go. Tom wasn't real. He's an AI figure we've created out of nothing. (laughs) He does does an awesome job for us on the podcast. Thank you, mate, for coming in and explaining that. Scott, quickly, Cadillac is coming back to Australia.
2: Yeah, speaking of GM, let's not say they're coming back quite yet, but the, the, the signs are looking good. So people might not know that Cadillac came within like two weeks of launching in Australia back in about 2008, 2009, uh, like the cars were here, the dealers were ready, and then they decided to just pull the pin, um, which was a bit of a shame. But it looks like they're evaluating coming back in through the SV brand that sort of replaced HSV in offering some of uh, GM's products like the Corvette. So Cadillac have some really cool cars happening at the moment. So personally, I think it'd be great to see the brand represented down under.
1: Thank you for correcting me there too. That was a bit of a Ron Burgundy moment for me. I needed a question mark in the teleprompter. I'm Greg Rust. (laughs) Now, to wrap up this segment of the news, a new study from Monash University has found uh, the daytime running lights reduce the risk of non-nighttime multi-vehicle accidents in the order of 10%. So to take us through these results and a bit more about the the research, Angelo D'Elia, the research fellow from Monash University and lead author of the study who's in the studio with us. G'day. G'day, how are you going? Tell
0: us a bit more about the the study and why you set off on this path. Yeah, well, I think um, part of the motivation of undertaking the study is that there hasn't been any recent studies that broadly examine the real-world crash-based effectiveness of DRLs that are currently present in the light vehicle fleet. Although DRLs have been a long time, I think there's been a particular ramping up of um, DRLs offered by different vehicle manufacturers, especially since 2010, and especially the newer type of um, LED DRLs. So the aim of our work was to um, estimate the impact of DRLs on casualty crash risk, but particularly reflecting the Australian crash population and our local conditions.
1: How did you go about... Collecting and analysing the data uh, of crashes and the and the use of um, DRLs in them.
0: Yeah, I think um, so. Our study is based on um, a database that we hold across Australasia. It's um, something we use to calculate things like the used car safety ratings. However, we've also used a lot of this to good effect to look at uh, the evaluation of various vehicle safety technologies. So. In this case, we looked at crashes across New South Wales, Victoria, Queensland, and Western Australia between 2010 and 2017. So are looking at around 120,000 casualty crashes um, in the database. Around 11,000 of those crashes were found to involve at least one vehicle that had DRLs fitted. So in terms of um, fitment, we um, identified that using uh, Redbook data. We were able to identify which cars had um, DRLs fitted and um, did a, a bit of a statistical model to determine how effective they were.
2: Angelo, you mentioned a couple of things there. One is the importance of doing it under Australian conditions. It's been mandated in Europe for quite a long time, um, but presumably Australia, different lighting conditions and longer days and stuff like that. What are the Australian conditions that you talk about?
0: Yeah, I suppose in Europe, they've been well aware of the benefits of DRLs. And look, if you look back, it probably started back right in the 1970s in the Nordic countries, and then Europe from 2011 Look, certainly the main reason um, that has, it has been looked at in Australia in the past, however, one of the issues was a cost-benefit equation. So I think people were worried that if you have DRLs, inc- increases uh, fuel consumption. And so therefore, if you look at the benefits versus the costs, then you can't really argue for a um, mandate because the cost too high. I think with the move to newer types of DRLs like LEDs, they um, are low running cost, And anyway, we're sort of moving away from petrol cars as well. So I think that that equation has shifted back to being a, a benefit rather than a cost. Um, and local conditions, I think yeah, with the, the aims of the study, we, we found is even under our um, relatively sunny conditions, they're quite effective um, to use during uh, daylight, but also during dawn or dusk periods as well.
1: Automotive industry is full of acronyms. If you've just joined the podcast, DRLs are, of course, daytime running lights. Um, Angelo, what percentage of cars are coming into the country with DRLs fitted right now?
0: I think the main um, statistic that we looked at registration data in New South Wales and what we found was that um, only around 62% of new vehicles that enter the fleet have DRLs fitted across all variants. There's an additional 26% of vehicles entering the fleet that may have them on some variants. Unfortunately, we've only got like the make and model in the registration data, so we don't have the variant details. So we have at least 62% fitted across all variants, so we know that much, and up to 26% we're some. So that's sort of where we're at. And so although, you know, there's this increase, I there's this potential to perhaps, um, if you mandate it, to make sure that all variants um, have, have been fitted so that should accelerate the fitment process because we know vehicle technology can take well, it could take 20 years sometimes for some of that technology to permeate the fleet. You talked a little bit before about what's happening
1: on, you know, the European or international scene. How does Australia's kind of DRL legislation really compare to, say, Europe?
0: Yeah, well, at the moment, there's no mandate in Australia. So generally, we tend to follow sort of rules and regulations from Europe. So they've had a mandate since 2011. And there are other types of vehicle technologies that we're talking about mandates as well. But In in terms of implementing uh, mandates um, in Australia, we have to have our regulation impact statement, so we need to provide the evidence that there's a benefit there and I suppose this study provides the evidence uh, for something like that if that's the way the um, government wants to go.
1: Well done. You can find out more too. There is a story on this on the car sales website, Um, incidentally. uh, Thanks to uh, Angelo Delia for coming into the studio and to the Monash University team. Thank you very much. It's been great to be here. something really cool has popped up in the classifieds this month. Pretty fitting too as we release this at the time the cars are just about to hit the track for the Australian Grand Prix in Melbourne. It is a 1965 Brabham BT16 Formula 2 car. Now, the modern era of F2 is actually in Melbourne for the first time this year too, so a little bit of synergy there. This is a very special car. In terms of its history, there's A win in there in Spain with the late Graham Hill at the wheel, for example. To tell us more about it, how good's this? Sir Jack's grandson, a racer in his own right, who these days is based in Australia, does some great content for Lorbeck Luxury Cars as well, and that's where he's calling in from today. Sam Brabham, welcome to the showroom.
5: Hi, thanks for for having me. Tell us a little bit more about the history of this car. Yeah, so you're right in saying... um it's a Formula 2 car. It's uh, sort of 1965. It was built, obviously raced by the great Graham Hill, obviously two-time Formula 1 world champion as well, uh, which is pretty incredible in itself. Um, and to have it based here in Melbourne at Lorbeck is, is pretty awesome. What uh, stats can you tell us technically about
1: the car? From what I've uh, you know, been able to look at the car sales ad naturally, but, you know, one-litre, four-cylinder, BRM engine, beautiful white colour, Sam, with a red stripe down the, the centre and so on.
5: Yeah, yeah, the one litre BRM engine was, was obviously a, at the time in the era was you know the the go to engine to have, and obviously winning in '66 at the Barcelona Grand Prix, to great success as well as is, is, is pretty amazing.
2: Sam, uh, you've driven a few cars, maybe not F two cars necessarily, but I think you've driven a couple of cars of this era that have sported the Brabham name. What can you tell us about what cars? Of that era, would like to drive. You know, it's quite small, very small, especially by today's standards. Small, light, high revving. What give us a give us a vibe of what they're like behind the wheel?
5: I love driving them because it's a real driver's car. Now, there's no aids, there's no help. It's all analog, and you know, every gear shift has to be precise. Every input you make into the car has to be very precise, and if you're not careful with it things can go wrong pretty quickly. And it makes me appreciate greatly how amazing the drivers of that era were because there was no help. You know, the great drivers of that time, like the Graham Hills, like my grandfather Jack, one mistake and it's not going to go very well. You know, like the the reality is that they would die. So to keep it on track, be fast, and to keep them confident with what they're doing with their inputs makes me really appreciate how bloody good those
1: guys were. As you've grown, made as a as a racer and someone even in the automotive game now, um, I sense in you that you have this great appreciation of the the history of kind of Brabham automobiles as well. And this car raced um, in in both the UK naturally, but also on the continent, as you detailed before, didn't it?
5: Yeah, yeah, raced obviously mostly in the UK, but also raced throughout Europe and and elsewhere, and obviously how it led to, to get to Melbourne. Um, I'm not too sure exactly, but it's one of those things, you know, like this, there was a period of time um, in the 60s, 70s, where Brabham was the biggest car manufacturer of race cars in the world. They were making more race cars than anyone, Formula 2s, Formula 3s, obviously Formula 1 with Jack and the likes of Denny Holm, but but also in Formula Formula Junior cars as well. Um, there's there's a whole heap of, of those as too. So it's hard not to appreciate it, I guess.
2: As we said, Graham Hill, multiple Formula One champion, was driving an F2 car. And I know you've done this a little bit yourself. You jump in and out of cars, different categories, and we often lament these days that that's not something that top-line drivers uh, do these days so much, Uh, whereas back then it was very, very common for, you know, Jim Clark or Graham Hill to drive an F2 and an F1 on the same weekend and then maybe drive a touring car or a rally car. So it must be a a bit of a bygone, throwback to a bygone era.
5: Yeah, a little bit. I, it's, I think it's a shame that people don't do it as much now. You know, you look at someone like Van and, you know, he's dipped his hand into rally, he's dipped his hand into other things. And I think that's really cool. And it also, you know, it, you're upskilling as well, right? Because you learn different things about yourself, about how to drive, what the car feels like. Um, it's something that my dad was always very, you know, if I had had the opportunity when I was younger to drive more often, we were going to just hop in different stuff, go do some rally, go do some off roading, go do something with downforce, something with no downforce, because ultimately it just gets you better. And I think that's why a lot of those guys were so revered as being the best, because they were hopping in different vehicles all the time. It made them better naturally, not just from driving more often, but they were developing new skills all the time. Hey, couple to
1: finish. I know you're busy, mate. You've been great to jump on and have a chat with us here. Uh, How much interest has there been for this? And can you give us an idea? Um, Naturally, it would have a, a fairly expensive kind of price range, I'd imagine.
5: Yeah, yeah. I think it's listed up for about half a million bucks, which, you know, given the history and the time period, it's also been fully restored as much as it can be with, with keeping everything as original as possible as well. So it's not got loads of new stuff in it. Like it's all original, which I think is better, you know, because it makes it more authentic, right? Part of a special collection. What has made the owner want to part with this? I'm not too sure, to be honest with you. Uh, I know he's good friends with um, with Shreko Lorbeck, so you know I think it was one of those ways gone. Look, you know my time with the car has has come come to an end, and you know all good things come to an end eventually, right? Yep. The real question is, given your names on the side of it, do you get a discount? I wish. (laughs) I
1: wish. (laughs) Hey, you've been doing a bit of racing yourself in GT cars here. Well done on that. And as we record this, a little birdie tells me, you and I think maybe your dad, David Brabham, are you heading to the Adelaide Motorsport Festival and what are you going to drive there that's pretty special?
5: Yeah, yeah. dad's coming. After three years, I'm finally going to see my family, which is the first thing, which is nice. Um, And yeah, so we're going to be heading to, to the Adelaide Motorsport Festival this weekend now. And I'm um, going to be driving the BT-19, so it's the 1966 championship-winning car that my granddad raced, which is pretty cool, but we're both going to drive it in the same session. So he's dad's going to probably drive first and hop out, and then I'm going to hop in and drive straight afterwards, which is the first time we've ever shared a car like that. And obviously, as cars go, that's as special as it gets.
1: Doesn't get much better. Congratulations, mate. Enjoy that. We love the fact that the Brabham name lives on in racing in all sorts of ways. Um, good luck behind the wheel with your own things and with the sale of this car. We look forward to chatting to you again on the showroom and uh, and from the team at, at Lawbeck at some stage. Yep, yeah, no, thank you very much for having me. There he is, Sam Brabham. And you can find out more information on this very special car just by going to the car sales website and searching for 1965 custom race car Brabham. That is it for this edition of the showroom. Love you to rate and review the podcast. Tell your friends and family about it too, those that are into cars especially. And even if they're not, there's something in there for uh, people that are kind of thinking about something to uh, to update when it comes to their daily drive. Now, if you've got a question, uh, maybe there's a new model coming out that you'd like to know some more details on, send us an email or even a little voice memo as well. You can do that. We'd love to tackle it for you, podcast at carsales.com.au. Scott, before we go, what's coming up for you? Lots of reviews,
2: lots of cars to drive, lots of videos to do. Too many to mention, Rusty.
1: I've got to get out of here. No doubt there will be some drifting, some sliding of cars involved with inverted commas for testing purposes. Uh, Scott, thank you for joining us for this edition of the podcast. On behalf of our producer, Tom, who joined us today as well, and all the team, we'll catch you next time. Bye for now. A listener production.